0: Hello and welcome to Mercy Christian Church's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Paul Van Heisteta. This week's message is taken from Pastor Ian Wildeborg's recent sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, particularly chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. The theme, true worship always involves giving. Enjoy and God bless. This morning we're going to open our Bibles to the book of Corinthians. It's a letter in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And it surrounds the theme of giving. And our theme for this morning's sermon, if we want to just go back one screen, is this, true worship always involves giving. True worship always involves giving. God delights to see us give, and He delights to see us give generously because he is, you understand, a very generous God. So with that theme in mind, let us, let us open our Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll read the verses 6 through 14. If you do not have a Bible with you, we, we have it um, available on the screen above us. This is the word of the Lord. Remember, this is Paul writing, remember this, whoever sows sparingly, speaking about giving, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace of God, has, for the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that gift, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Let us ask the Lord for a blessing over his word, and then we're going to open Nehemiah chapter 10. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come and, and wrestle with, think about, hear about the giving of our financial gifts. And for some people here this morning, for the first time, they might think that the church is really all about money. If they hear a sermon, the first sermon on giving. Help them to know and help us all to know that it's not true. Our desire, Father, is to have lives of living sacrifices fully dedicated to you, and a part of that will be our budget, our finances. Father, we want to honor you. We want to honor you with our wealth. We want to honor you with our energy. We want to honor you with our gifts, with our talents, with our time. We want to dedicate our lives to you because of what you've done for us. So, Lord, as we enter into this topic, it's a difficult one to to talk about, to proclaim, uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, guide us, guide my words, guide our hearts, so that through this time, Lord, you may be honoured, and we may be challenged and encouraged and comforted in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this morning, if you are at all connected to the wider Christian community... You probably have heard, read, seen, followed what's happening in Osbury uh, College. It's what they've named a, a, a revival, actually. Asbury is a small Christian college in Wilmore, Kentucky. On February 8th, they had a chapel service that has now continued for almost two weeks. With people flying in from as far as New Zealand to experience what's happening at this college in Asbury. Here's a picture of this revival that's happening there. Other Christian colleges are, are joining this experience, and there are chapel services now are running throughout the United States at various colleges as people are coming to know or experience Christ. See, at the tail end of the chapel, a couple of dozen students assembled informally and began to pray together and to c- confess their sins. And, and as they were praying and confessing their sins together in small groups, the number just continued to grow into the evening. And, and someone said, what marked this time was a hunger, was hunger, repentance, reconciliation, and adoration for or of Jesus. They were hungry for Jesus, and they were seeking to adore him. Another person writes, when God interrupts you, you have to take note and listen. Students are experiencing a true transformation and true freedom. That's what this person wrote. Even the former vice president has chimed in, Mike Pence. He says, the Lord is at work at Asbury and lives will be changed forever. There's reason to celebrate what the Lord is doing there today with them. What is of note, however, as we consider what the Lord is doing, and we don't want to diminish his power here, it's what the president of, of Osbury College writes in a blog post. He wrote this. I think it's wise to see this at the current phase as an awakening. Only if we see the lasting transformation which shakes the comfortable foundations of the church and truly brings us all to a new and deeper place can we look back in hindsight, and say, yes, this has been a revival. See, the proof of a revival, whatever is happening there, by God's grace, lives are being changed there. Whatever is happening there, a true revival will do this. It it will last out the days of the chapel. It will, sorry, outlast the days of the chapel. It will move into a pattern of living that's been transformed, that Christ is first, us second, that his church is important, that membership is important to a local church, and that the gospel continues to go out into all the world. That should be the passion and the growth from this experience. But that takes time. It takes time to see that this awakening is producing a great uh, revival, you could say, in the United States. And we pray it does. And we pray it does. What connects this passage now to our text is is somewhat similar. Over the last few weeks, we have considered what the Lord has been doing in the time of Nehemiah, 400 years before Jesus, amongst the people who also saw at least the seeds of a revival grow into what maybe would become a big sequoia tree or something. I think of a picture of sequoia trees uh, in the British Columbia. Those are those big ones. That's a little person down there. That's the fruit of revival. It starts small but continues to grow and produce great fruit for God's glory. So what was happening in Nehemiah, just quickly, some of you are new here. What was happening in Nehemiah from chapter 8 to chapter 10 is that the people gathered together and began to hear God's law read to them. And after they heard God's law read to them, they began to weep over their sins. That weeping was curtailed in chapter 8 into chapter 9. We move and they said, we need to gather again to continue to confess our sins. For three hours they heard God's law again. For three hours they confessed their sins. And then they enter this beautiful time of prayer. One of the most beautiful prayers of the Old Testament is found in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. And then we get to chapter 10. And when we get into chapter 10, the revival just keeps building speed as it does. When the Spirit of God is at work. And they're saying, "Well, you know what we want to do now? We want to pledge our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, to to Yahweh in the Old Testament. To us in the New would be Jesus. And by pledging their lives, they say, we are pledging ourselves to the Word of God. We are pledging ourselves to holy marriages. We're pledging ourselves to Sabbath rest. And we're pledging ourselves to giving. When it came to the reading of God's Word this week, I was thinking to myself, you know what? I want to rename our church. But I didn't. I didn't even suggest it to our leadership. Don't worry. To the four plus church. You're like, well, that's not very biblical. Trinity would be biblical. Seven would be a biblical number, but four plus. The reason I said four plus is because we learned last week, some of you were here, we learned last week that after the Back to the Bible did that research and interviewed 400,000 people that if you were to read the Word of God four or more times a week, it's going to change your week. It's going to change your life. But under four times, if you're only going to read the Bible three times a week, you probably won't see much change in your life. Those sins, those persistent sins that you keep doing, are just going to kind of stay alongside you because you're not allowing the Word of God to convict your spirit to change. I wonder this week, as I was preparing the sermon, if if any of you have devoted yourself to the regular reading of God's Word and the meditation upon it. I recommitted myself to that, to at least six times a week. To digging into the word, giving myself at least an hour, a half hour to an hour of digging into the word, praying over the word, allowing the word to change me. Because if the word is the priority of your week, your week will change. Full stop. That was the word of God when it came to marriage. We talked about holy unions. That We don't want to be unequally yoked. Marriage, listen, is precious in God's eyes. And healthy marriages bring glory to God. There's redemption. There's grace if your marriage is broken. But don't stay in brokenness. Move into healing. Follow God's way for your marriage. Seek Christ. Serve him together. Be devoted under the authority of God's word for the sake of his glory in your marriage. We talked about that. And then we also talked about Sabbath rest. Trusting God with your day of rest every week. He has you. Don't worry. It's not all about business. It's not all about money. It's not all about more. If it's going to be about more, it's going to be about more about Jesus. Just say that and remember that. And the Sabbath week or Sabbath rest is one day in seven is to say, Christ, you are more. I trust you with my finances. I trust you with my business. I trust you with my work. I trust you with everything. I'm going to rest in you and I'm going to be refreshed in you. And we come together for corporate worship on that day. That was last week. And at the end of the sermon, I said, I don't have time for my fourth point, so that's this Sunday. But then I extended it, and it's going to be another 35 minutes. Don't worry. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. We're looking this afternoon, or sorry, this morning, moving into the afternoon, on, on, on commitment to give. And, and this is the theme, true worship always involves giving. So they pledged themselves to the Word of God, they pledged themselves to holy marriage, they pledged themselves to Sabbath rest, and they pledged themselves to giving. In fact, if you're going to look at chapter 10 of Nehemiah, which we're going to do right now, three quarters of, two thirds of the chapter is all about the giving. It's pretty important. So we're going to give it time this afternoon, or this morning. I keep saying afternoon, I have no idea what time it is. Um, so let's open our Bibles then to Nehemiah chapter 10. Last week we went through all those beautiful names, all these families, these fathers who are dedicating themselves to the service of the Lord, grandfathers as well. What a blessing that is to see our fathers and our grandfathers love Jesus more than anything else. That's a huge gift to the church and to the families. Um and that day and our day is this the same. So here's Nehemiah chapter 10. After all the names, we get those pledges and then we get the third and, or fourth and final pledge, the pledge of giving, and we're going to begin at verse 32. This is what we find there in verse 32. Now, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. 34. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests, ministering there. Moreover, We will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe, 10% of our crops, to the Levites, for it is the Levites who will collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithe up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. And here it comes. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. True worship always involves giving. True worship is a fruit of true revival. True worship is a fruit of true revival. You see, when Christ takes control of your heart, and changes you from the inside out. That's what he does by his Holy Spirit when he takes control of your heart. You become passionate actually about worshipping him. It's a sign that he's actually in there, the Holy Spirit. A new song you could say erupts in your heart for the name of Christ and for the glory of his Father. Your mouth will begin to open and maybe even your hands will get unleashed and lifted up high to praise the king of all kings. That's what happens as worship starts to fill your heart with praise for the one who has saved you. But it won't end there. It can't end there. Not only does it create you in a heart to to worship, to just to proclaim the goodness of our Lord, to share it abroad, not only does it do that, it begins to change the pattern of your day and of your life. This is Paul, chapter 12, Romans, Romans 12, verse 1. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your whole life as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When Christ is in here, your lifestyle will change. Your life is dedicated now as a living sacrifice to Jesus. I remember, I think I've shared this before, how the Lord changed my heart and he had to change it drastically. But it was actually undetectable to me how that change happened. Maybe you have a similar story. You don't exactly know when and how that change happened. But I remember in my late teens, in my early 20s, I said I loved Jesus. I said I was a Christian. But I was fully embedded in all that the world could offer me, let me tell you. I'd actually sidelined Christ and I was worshipping money. I was feeding the fires of lust in my soul. And I cared little for the Church of Jesus Christ. And I cared even little less for the lost. Just living my little life, it's all about Ian. And at 22, the Lord changed that. And not only then did Christ become a priority in my life, thanks be to God, but so did his church. And so did the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ become something that my heart was burning to see happen. That Jesus would not be only known here, but also abroad. To the lost, I wanted to see people changed by the gospel. You see, when Christ takes control of your heart, your budget changes, your goals change, your lives change, because now your heart is full of worship. And I wondered this morning if that defines your heart. Have you, by God's grace, seen this change in your life? I pray it has happened. Or if it hasn't, that it will happen very, very soon. It's the change between life and death, or death to life. It's a change that brings glory to God. But this is my theme then. True worship always involves giving. I'm just going to ask three questions against this theme this morning in connection to my text. And these are this, the what, the why, and the how. What are we giving? (laughs) Why are we giving? And how do we give? The what, the why, and the how. Pretty basic model for preaching, but it's fun to ask simple questions against a text. Let's begin with the what. That's the context. The context allows us to answer, or the context, the passage allows us quickly to answer the what. The giving that the people of Israel were pledging themselves to in our text was for the continuation of temple worship. And the support of the priests and the Levites. That's what they were doing. In the towns and then in the city. And, and, and what they knew from this was what they had heard from the law of God. Because this was codified about a thousand years before this day when they pledged themselves to giving. It was codified in the, in the book of Exodus. Written about a thousand years before this. The book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. They had read that, they had heard that, they had appropriated the truth concerning the giving and they understood very clearly all the stipulations the Lord had around giving. And they're like, okay, we gotta do this, we gotta do this, we gotta do this, we gotta do this. A third of a shekel for the service of the temple. That's a yearly donation that we have to make. Simply said, no money, no service. No money, no sacrifices of atonement. No money, no offerings, no money, no festivals. We, as a church of Jesus Christ, must give our third every year. Each household then was chosen by lot uh, over the course of the year to contribute to the wood of the altar. They were still sacrificing every single day, in the morning, in the evening, and then throughout the day, sacrifices on the altar that needed firewood. Each family had to bring some. When the harvest came in, the first fruits of their crops, that was the Lord's. Even if, it was, even if you didn't know whether the next crop would be good, or the first fruits of your herd, whether you, the, a cow didn't have another calf, or the, the, the goat didn't have another kid seems weird to say that. You still gave the first one to the Lord. That was a 10% of their produce. Deuteronomy 26 puts this in context. He says, "When Deuter- this is the Lord speaking, thus then say to the Lord your God. So say this to God when you give. I have removed from my house the sacred portion, that 10%, whatever that is, And have given it to the Levite, to the foreigner, to the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. I've done my giving. So they gave their produce, they gave their crops, of their their animals, of their crops. They gave their shekel. But they also had to dedicate their firstborn son. They would bring their firstborn son to the temple with a sacrifice typically a lamb, or two turtle doves, or two pigeons if you were poor, and you would sacrifice those animals, and then you get your son back. You've redeemed your son, because every son belonged to the Lord. Every firstborn son in Israel belonged to the Lord. And this was because of the Passover. Some of you know the story. When Israel was in Egypt, they were under the bondage and slavery of Pharaoh, and God had said to Pharaoh, let My people go through Moses. He said that, and Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not gonna do that. So he said it again, no, again, no. And so he sent nine plagues, disasters upon the land of Egypt, and they kept saying, no, 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 no. And finally he said, okay, I'm gonna send the angel of death. I'll take your firstborn sons. But my firstborn son, which is Israel, will be set free. So the angel passed over the houses of Israel, when they had the blood on the lintels on the top of the doorposts, they passed over and they destroyed the firstborn sons and they demolished the country and, and God set his people free. But he said after that, the firstborn belongs to me. And they knew that. They had read the law. And that was, this, was, this was for the whole assembly. This was for everybody. Everybody, the fathers, but also the mothers and the children were pledging themselves to honour the Lord in this way. That's what they had to give. Now today you say, well, we don't have a, a temple. That's true, per se. And we don't, have to, we don't have to do sacrifices, thankfully. That's all done. In fact, to do a sacrifice now would be an abomination to the Lord. But the Bible says we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that we are joined together to build a spiritual house. So the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ is still a house. It's a spiritual one now. Joined by Christ. Joined by his Spirit. 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be holy, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now we give to God's spiritual house. And for the expansion of the gospel, spiritually, you could say. But we learn again here that true worship always involves giving. We are people purchased by the blood of Christ to serve, to see the church grow, to see the needs of the poor met, to help the widow, the followless, the refugee, the trafficked, and all those in financial need. We, the Church of Jesus Christ, is a care- are a caring spiritual machine you could say, for the glory of God. That's what we give to. That's the why. Here's the why. Why does true worship always involve giving? I don't know if you noticed, as we read through a passage, there are a total of nine references in eight verses to where God dwells. I'm just going to read them to you, and then we're going to talk about them briefly. Here they are, 10 verse 32, for the service of the house of our God, for all the duties of the house of our God, to bring to the house of our God, on the altar of the Lord, our God, bringing to the house of the Lord, to the house of our God, at the storerooms of the house of our God, to the house of our God, we will not neglect the house of our God. You see any repetition there? Nine references to the house or to the altar of God. But look look at the, keep the screen up for a second. But one possessive pronoun. And the kids are like, what's a possessive pronoun? I don't know. I'd look it up. That possessive pronoun is that little word, our. You see that? It's the house of our God. So what does that mean? They did not want to neglect the house of their God because what was happening there was communion with their God. It wasn't the building, it was the architect. It wasn't the house, it was the builder. It wasn't the temple. It was the worship that happened in the temple that brought sinful people in the presence of a holy God through the sacrifice of atonement that they could be united with this God in worship and receive his blessing. He's our God. You see, generosity to the house of God was a direct overflow from a heart that loves God. God. The the generosity that is happening in our text is an overflow because they wanted to commune with the God they loved. You see, when the heart is rekindled, when it's changed from the inside out, it's no longer about the money. About how much money you give or how little you give. Because you know everything belongs to God anyway. Uh, You know that. It's all about the relationship. I'll say that again. It's not about the money. It's not about how much you give or how little you give, how much service you render. At the end of the day, it's all about the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. That's defining in everything you do and why you do what you do. Because true worship always involves giving. In a sense, you could say, you can't help but give. It's just part of the relationship. I give gifts to my wife. She gives gifts to me. I like when she gives gifts to me. I like it more than giving gifts to her. Just kidding. I love receiving gifts. But it's part of the relationship. We give gifts to each other. What you're saying when you're giving to the Lord, even today when you give to support the work of the church and you support those who are in need, you're saying, I, "I, I, I want to meet with God. I want God to be worshipped. Not only do I want to meet with God, I want others to enjoy the fellowship of meeting with God on Sunday morning. I want this to continue. I want that to be celebrated." I want to see his kingdom come. I want the poor and the widow, the divorcee, the trafficked, the disabled and the refugee cared for. I want to see Christ preached around the world. In so many ways, I want this relationship to flourish, not just in my life, but in the lives of millions of other people. And for that reason, I'm just going to give. Put another way. This is a strong word here. Financial giving. A material contribution to the church without the undercurrent of a personal relationship with the living Christ will become annoying for you. It will become taxing, no pun intended. It will become drudgery. You will complain. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the church says to you, I think you should give, you will complain. You say, I don't have very much to give. What can I give? You'll just be thinking about your bank book, your bank book, your bank book, your bank book. Do they have those? Let me be very frank. If that's where your heart is at, loved ones, that you're giving to the work of the Lord is drudgery. It's just, I just want to keep the elders off my back. I don't want them to ask why I have a zero beside my name. If that's the only reason why you give, Don't give. God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your gifts. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He wants your heart. And a heart that gives is overflowing in thankfulness to him. A heart that gives is overflowing in thankfulness to him. So if you're thankful, you'll give. So I had this question on repeat through my mind. Man, the time just keeps running quickly here. But I had this question on repeat on my mind this week. And I asked this question. And maybe you have an answer for me. Is there a connection towards giving generously in Holy Communion? Or the other question kept coming back. What is the connection between me giving generously to the church and Holy Communion? Is there a connection? Can I come to the table of the Lord with a clear conscience and celebrate this holy meal for what he has done for me if I'm not giving to the church of Jesus Christ? Is my conscience clear? Can I, can I go to this table with a clear conscience if I've given nothing to the church? That was on repeat for me. Pastors have a really fun life. We just have questions that come, And I came to the conclusion that I can't. I can't come to this table with a clear conscience if I'm not giving. Now, listen to me very carefully. It's not because I earn anything by the giving. You don't have to pay a dime to Jesus to earn your salvation, thankfully. You gave nothing, absolutely nothing, to secure your salvation, just so you know. All you gave to Jesus, all you gave to Jesus in the securing of your salvation was your sin. That's all you gave him. Here's my filth, Jesus. Here are my lies, my gossip my sexual impurity, my thievery, my pornography, my shame, my guilt, my anger issues, my impatience, my jealousy, my pride. You take that. That's all you've done. That's all you've done. And Jesus became poor because of it. He became poor because of what we gave him. But this is the gospel. So that we could become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Or you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Rich in grace, rich in love, rich in generosity, rich in fellowship. You do, not, you do not add a dime to the work of the Lord to save you. He took it all for you. He invites you to this table free of charge. But if he has blessed you that way, if you have just given him all your garbage, I was going to say the other word, and he has responded and given you all this grace, all this forgiveness, all this love, and the promise of eternal life, and an inheritance that you could not even imagine for all eternity, if he's given you all of that, will you not desire to give In response? No, you will. You will offer your life as a living sacrifice of thankfulness. You're like, thank you, Jesus, here you go. You'll open your wallet and you'll say, oh, Jesus, may I bless your name and may I bless your people with my financial gift. You You are now first in my budget because I love you above all other things. It's your will in my life, not mine. May the Spirit of God help me to be generous because you are so generous to me. That's why I think true worship always involves giving. You can't help but give when you've understood what has happened so that this table has happened for you. Let me just close with this. The how. How do we give? Let's begin with our financial gifts. How do we give our financial gifts? Well, it's not about the amount. Just for the record, it's not about the amount. An amount is prescribed in our text that was Old Covenant. You move to the New Covenant and there's no prescription to how much we need to give to the Lord. There's zero prescription. So we need to take that seriously. Paul says to giving, he says, give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not under compulsion. What's, what's bubbling up in your heart for Jesus? What's burning in your heart for the cross? What's burning in your heart to see his name expanded and his glory expanded across the earth? Okay. Let that be your litmus test to how much you give. For some, it's a tithe. That's what they can give at this time in their life. For others, it's 50% of their income according to the way the Lord has blessed them. And God is not in the heaven looking, looking at a calculator That's not... Our God doesn't do that. God is looking at it from heaven and looking at your heart and he's asking the question, when you give, what do I mean to you? What does Jesus mean to you when you look at your budget? What does Jesus mean to you when you look at your finances? Every single time you get a salary or maybe a salary increase, every single time you make some extra profit, what does Jesus mean to you? That's what God's looking at. This helps us answer the question, how much do we give when we're in the red? Do I still give if I'm financially in debt? I got student loans I'm trying to pay off. I got a mortgage that's through the roof. And the, the answer is, of course, you continue to give. There's no red, black, green, or white in the Bible. Insolvency, solvency. It, we don't, you don't have that in the Word of God. If God is supplying you, listen. If God is supplying you with daily work or government assisted funding and you love Him, you will give something to Him. You will give before you give to the government. You will give before you give to your landlord. You will give before you give to your mortgage agency, your broker. You will give first to Jesus. He's first in your life. That might mean you can only give 50 bucks a month. Because you live in austerity measures right now. I'm sorry if you do. Some of you are living in very austere lifestyles right now. Some of you aren't. But there should be no non-givers in the church of Jesus Christ. You give because you love. You give because he's first. You give because you want this to continue. The Christian life, I'll just say this quickly, is a pay-forward program. Someone paid forward... And someone gave your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents a Bible. Someone paid for that. Someone paid for it and planted a church somewhere where you were saved. Someone paid for this building. Maybe this is the first time you hear about Jesus, but someone's paying for this. Someone's paying for me too. It's a pay-forward program for the sake of the other. You give so the gospel can continue to grow into all the world until Jesus comes back. But not only do you give finally, not only do you give of your time, because of your money, but you, you give yourself. This is the whole story. It starts in our text with the financial giving, but certainly when it says, do not neglect the house of the Lord, that means that you, you find ways to serve the Lord in his house. You find ways to contribute. Some of you can't contribute a lot financially, and some of you can, but if God has given you a mind and hands and feet and mouth and energy, there are and the ability to pray. There, there, there's lots of ways to serve. Some people say, well, you know, I, I don't feel too involved at Mercy Church. I, I'm going to encourage you to serve. I feel lonely. Serve. I'm not sure where to, where to go. I don't know sure how to serve. Here's a screen that's going to come up right behind me. And it's going to tell you all the different teams that are involved at Mercy Church. And if you're interested in serving any of them, there we go. You can find, not these people, but you can talk to some of our uh, elders. They'll be at the welcome team and say, you know what? I have been part of Mercy for a few months now, and I I haven't really been serving a lot here at this church. But I'm quite interested in AV, or I want to join the prayer team. You know what? Promotions, Evan looks like a great guy. Care team, I think I like to care for people. Social team, I'm very social. Some of you aren't. That's fine. Sunday worship, man, that's really important. I'm thankful for all the names up there. Those are just some of the coordinators, liaisons to all those teams. But if you're here and you love Jesus and you've been here for a while, you'll find a way to serve. Speak to our attendants at the back team at the Welcome Team banner because you're here to serve and Christ wants your service. Now let me close, close with this. The so-called revival in Osbury, I want to say it's a revival, but time will tell. We'll call it an awakening, will bear fruit. The revival that happened in the days of Nehemiah also bore fruit. Their fruit was connected to the sacrificial system pointing to Jesus. Our fruit that we bear in the church in our service to Christ, is all connected to the table. You have to understand that for me to bear fruit and for you to bear fruit, you need to be attached to the vine. And that vine is Christ. Because we're attached to the vine, who is Christ, we bear much fruit. And Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. But all of that vine is pointing us to the cross of Jesus Christ, where the reconciliation happened, where the worship was restored, where the hope was restored, where our relationship with the Father was restored. Therefore, when we look at this whole passage, this pledging to commit ourselves to the Bible reading of the word, to the reading of the word, this pledge to holy marriages, something the church is so passionate about, something the church must continue to be passionate about, when we consider what it means to have our rest, our weekly rest for the glory of God, and when we consider ourselves giving to the church of Jesus Christ, every one of them is possible because of the cross. We have hope for our marriages because of the cross. We have passion to learn what Jesus wants us to do because of the cross. We have passion to give and to give generously because of the cross. Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything, everything has to do with the cross and this table and the way that we serve. So loved ones, be cross-centered Christians and as you're cross-centered Christians, you're gonna give, you're gonna protect your marriages, you're gonna find time to rest in the Lord and you're gonna be a student of his word faithful in prayer because the cross has shaped your life as it has shaped mine to his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. You don't come down here with a balance sheet. You're not coming down here with a whip. You're not telling us to do this or do this. You just want us to respond to you for what you've done for us and to go forward in confidence That you will provide, even as we give our gifts to you. Lord, this was really a message to our church members, those who are new with us. Lord, they they, they need to process this at their own level, at their own time. But Lord, as a church community committed to see your name exalted, to see your kingdom come, Fill our hearts with generosity. Fill our hearts with an overflow of your love so that we love deeply. And that love defines everything we do, even what we give. Lord, be honored. Be honored in our gifts to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Mercy Christian Church's weekly podcast. I hope you were blessed by today's message. For more information about Mercy Christian Church, please visit us online at www.mercychurch.ca. Thanks for listening, and God bless.